Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, producer Jonah here. Season 2 is underway. And now we're launching back into our regular format, bringing together two expert guests with opposing views on big social issues. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And we encourage you to hop onto our Principle of Charity socials and get involved in the conversation yourself. Enjoy. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. It asks us to treat others as intelligent and in so doing, it allows us to do a better job at evaluating their argument. So, Emil, what's our topic for today? Thanks, Lloyd. Our topic today is should societies allow voluntary euthanasia, also known as voluntary assisted dying? So what do we do as a society with people who want to die? I'm talking here about those at the end of their lives who know that the rest of their waking hours will be filled with much pain and and who want to choose when and how to end it. There are a range of terms to describe this, many hotly contested depending on the particular view you hold from voluntary assisted dying to voluntary euthanasia to assisted suicide, even state-sanctioned killing. It's such a hot topic, and for good reason. We're talking here about death itself and who gets to preside over it. Now, in countries with the monotheistic traditions of you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, there's a deep-seated belief that whilst we have a degree of autonomy as to how we live our life, our life itself is a gift from God, and it's not something we can just hand back no matter how much of a burden it may be to us. But even if we don't believe in God, many of us still think that there's something so special about life that even we don't have the right to decide when and how to end it. That when it comes to death, we need to leave it in the hands of a greater force. If not God, then nature itself. And all of this pushes us right up against the limits of our ability to consent to our own death. You know, for how can we consent to something that we won't even be around to regret? Isn't consent at its core a bargain with our future selves. All of this, Lloyd, is of course very tough for the institution of medicine. In the West, at least, it's built on the premise that doctors should do no harm. And so discussions about assisted dying fire straight into the heart of uh, medicine's identity. Just, Just think about how hard it is to question the core oath that you've built your working life upon. But we're also in a society that prizes individual autonomy and self empowerment. And when you've been told for 80 years to take control of your life, but then in the final straight, you've no right to make arguably the most important decision of your life. It does feel like a slightly perverse twist of logic, or at the very least, a bitter pill to swallow. So in this episode, we will be dancing at the edge 
of this abyss, exploring the arguments for and against assisted dying, traveling the range of paths that many countries have chosen to go down, sliding down the slippery slopes, and doing all of this with our two fantastic guests. Who are they, Lloyd? Emil, our two guests today, and I am very excited about uh, hearing them, are Andrew Denton and Bernadette Tobin. Let me start with Andrew first. Andrew is an award-winning writer, performer, and producer. His TV programs include The Money or the Gun, Enough Rope, and The Gruen Transfer. His podcast series, Better Off Dead, about the complex arguments for and against assisted dying, have helped inform the debate around end-of-life choice in Australia. In 2016, Andrew founded the charity Go Gentle to help relieve the distress, helplessness, and suffering experienced by Australians with untreatable or terminal illnesses. Our other guest, Emil, is Bernadette Tobin. Bernadette received a PhD in politics from the University of Cambridge. Currently, she is a reader in philosophy at the Australian Catholic University and director of the Plunkett Centre for Ethics at St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. Bernadette has honorary appointments in the medical faculties of both the University of New South Wales and the University of Sydney. Emil, with respect to both of these guests, I think they have displayed the principle of charity by just being here. Andrew in particular has fully devoted this chapter of his life to advocating for voluntary assisted dying through his organization, Go Gentle Australia. And Bernadette is equally passionate about why we shouldn't allow it. There's a lot at stake in terms of legislation going through Parliament in countries all around the world. Emil, let's bring on the guests. Well, thank you so much, Andrew and Bernadette, for joining. Let's start with you, Andrew. Tell us, why do you think we should allow doctors to assist people to die? And in what circumstances do you think it's, it's okay? Well, <laughs> that's... That, you always start with a big first question, don't you? Uh, probably the best way I can answer why we should assist people to die is to go back to the uh, Victorian inquiry into end-of-life choices, which ultimately um, recommended that Victoria write that law, which was the first one written in Australia, in an Australian state. And they found uh, the following, that um, under the existing end-of-life laws in Australia, uh, that people were being given inadequate pain relief at the end of life because doctors were fearful of doing that, that for all as many benefits, uh, palliative care could not help everyone and therefore some people were dying with great suffering, uh, that some people were resorting to really desperate measures, taking their own lives, uh, faced with this suffering, that both people dying and families um, had gone through the uh, really psychologically tortuous experience of watching people choosing the option to stop eating and drinking and, and die slowly, as existing law allows, and that uh, some people were unfortunately um, ending the lives of their loved ones, being put on trial uh, but not being given a custodial sentence because uh, there appeared to be no medical option that would help them. So those are all reasons. Those are all strong reasons uh, which showed that our existing end-of-life laws uh, weren't working. What are the circumstances in which I think somebody should, a doctor should assist someone to die? Well, first of all, uh, that they must be a competent adult. Um, my view is that, um, and this is not actually the law in Australia, that uh, the circumstances in which someone should assist a person to die is when they are uh, suffering from a medical condition which is causing them enduring suffering. 
which cannot be treated in a way which is either effective or which they find tolerable. Great. Well, there's a lot in there that we're going to unpack, but let's go to you, Bernadette. How would you present, I guess, the opposite case, why doctors shouldn't be allowed to assist people to die? I do think doctors should be allowed to assist people to die in comfort and with dignity. I don't think doctors should be allowed to assist people to commit suicide. And I don't. I certainly don't think doctors should be allowed to deliberately end a patient's life themselves. So why do I think those things? Really for three reasons. One, because of my understanding of the inherent value of human life, that is, that it ought to be treated as inviolable. Secondly, because I think bad things happen to people when these practices of assisted suicide and euthanasia are legalised. And thirdly, because I think it just corrupts the doctor-patient relationship. It's a very bad thing for medicine. Okay, well, we're going to go through each of those, I'm sure, as we get through this conversation. But can I just go, Bernadette, to that distinction between, I guess, action and omission when when you when a doctor acts to end someone's life versus when they let someone die or withhold treatment how do you see that bright line working there are various times when omitting to do something can be immorally problematic if i walk past someone on the street who's choking and i'm the only person around and i decide to do nothing that's surely morally bad why do you see there being such a bright line between those two there will often come a point where the treatment that is prolonging the person's life or even keeping the person alive is no longer therapeutic. Mm. It's, it's keeping the person alive, but it's in no sense healing them, in no sense at all. And indeed, it's, um, it, it may also be what we call overly burdensome. It might have some benefits, but it's imposing burdens of pain or other symptoms or it's requiring that the person keeps coming in for treatment, whatever, the burdens are very mm. individual. And so a good doctor will have the discussion with the patient about backing off and allowing the, the patient to die. Now, sooner rather than later. Now, uh, how that discussion goes will be, of course, very individual and um, a good doctor will sometimes recommend things to people, indeed recommending that, you know, that they back off from life-prolonging treatment. But all of that is at home with that Hippocratic commitment to look after the, the, the patient in, in good health and in sickness and, indeed, as the person dies. That's, that's the, the overarching ethic and built into that is sometimes that in order to relieve a physical symptom, um, it may have to be done in a way that has various side effects. Great. Andrew, you know, we're in such an individualistic society where we want to control everything and we think we've got the right to control any everything. Is there a sort of hubris here? Uh, you know, we, we didn't decide when we were going to be born and how we were born. Is this just a decision that 
it's not ours to make. There's certainly a very strong view, and uh, particularly in the Catholic Church, that that, that is right, that uh, it, is, it is not for a doctor or anyone to end the life of a sick person, that, that God decides these things because God gave us life. But I think, you know, as I look at this conversation happening around the world, you know, right now in India, <laughs> they're debating things that we debated 20 or 30 years ago in Australia, which is, you know, do you have a right to refuse treatment? Yes, we have an absolute right to refuse treatment. Do you actually have a right to uh, turn off uh, machines that might sustain your life? Yes, you have an absolute right to do that. Do you have a right to stop eating and drinking and be medically supported as you die, whether that is a, a long or slow process? Yes, you have that right. So mm. uh, I think I, one thing I'm sure Bernadette and I will agree on today is that this entire conversation is fraught with ambiguity. There's a lot mm. of nuance. There's not. There's no bright shining line, I believe, anywhere. Bernadette may disagree. Um, so this question of do we believe in control, I think this is a question faced by all societies, and it's partly because... Uh, we live longer than we ever used to, certainly in Western yeah. society. We die now of uh, chronic diseases uh, as opposed to uh, communicable ones that we used to die from, obviously putting COVID to one side. Um, as we've lived longer and as we've seen medicine capable of keeping us alive longer, which it can, and uh, you know, Bernadette referred to burdensome treatment, and but there's also futile treatment and, and there's a, there is unfortunately quite a strong history of, of, of modern medicine engaging in futile treatment. Mm. People look at that uh, for themselves, but they've looked at that, I think, with our generation for their parents, uh, with friends' parents, and they go, well, that is not something that I want to experience or that I think is a fair thing. Um, and when we talk about control, I think that this conversation is not just about a person's desire to be in control. Mm. I think a lot of this debate has been about the amount of control the medical profession and in many cases, the medical profession with a very strong moral view about what should happen at the end of the life, how much control they should have. Yeah, great, great. Bernadette, let's go back. I think it was to your point number two in your introduction, that there is something so precious in our lives, about our lives, that even we don't have the right to trade off our spark of life, um, regardless of the pain we're in and we can get to pain but you know I think from my understanding you believe that even if you're in pain you just don't have the right to make that decision do you need to be religious or to have a religious um, underpinning to to hold that view so Emil I'm a Catholic I'm a cradle Catholic yes. and um, I'm, I'm grateful for that and um, uh, but nothing in this conversation that I say um, is based on theology, nothing at all. Right. Andrew would know that very many Catholics are very much in favour of the laws that he's helping to introduce. And one other preliminary before I get to the substance of your question, and it's this, that although nothing I say is based on revelation or theological or religious in that sense, Christianity endorses a lot of things that ordinary decent people think and a reasonable religion will try to explain its social teachings as best as it can. Mm. And that's why I have accepted this invitation today, because mm. I'm very keen to do the best job that I can to explain these, these teachings. Now, in the light of that, what was the question you asked me? Ah, <laughs> sanctity of life. 
what is the secular argument in favour of the sanctity of life? Okay, so I, I take sanctity just to be a religious way of making a point that's in fact a, a um, humanistic, secular, reason-based right. point, and it's this. There are basically three ways in which you can think of the value of human life. You could think of it in a vitalist way. Nothing must ever be done to in any way shorten it. Crazy. You can think of, of it in what I call a qualitarian way, a quality-based way, where its value depends on it having some particular quality. Now, what that quality is depends on who's explaining this view, but mostly qualitarians value thinking and reasoning and choosing and willing. So the more those qualities are present in life, the higher value it's got, the less they're present in a life, the lower value it's got. Mm. And some lives so lack those qualities that they don't have any value at all. Mm. Now, I think that view is just arbitrary and unjust. Now, my own view you might think of as a middle view, and it's this idea that every human being's uh, life is marked by radical capacities to think and to love and to fear and to want and to desire and be anxious and all of those things. And um, in some people, those great capacities are not exercisable either because of their age or their disability or their lack of their illness or something. But every single human being has those capacities. And that's what the UN Declaration on Human Rights means. Every human being is uh, equal in worth and dignity. Now, um, given that, that, that's the idea which says, so you shouldn't deliberately extinguish these lives. With, I, that's the attitude even I should take. Life, if, even, even our own even life. Even Yeah. Now, look, it's true that um, in the past people might have had a, 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 an unreasonably and uncharitable um, uh, attitude to suicide and what we should be, the, our attitude should be compassion and understanding and that kind of thing. But I, my life is uh, inviolable. Another way of putting it is it's precious. Another way of putting it is it's sacred. But all those terms mean the same thing. It should not be, it should be treated as something that isn't the subject of attack, either by myself or by certainly by a doctor. Even, even if we ask the doctor to do it. And that was the point that Hippocrates said. He said, I'll, I won't give a poison to anyone, even if he asks me. Andrew, can we just step back from some of the laws in Australia and, you know, here you do really have to be terminally ill and just sort of ask you what you think. Like, as I understand it, in, in Australia and in countries like the US and the UK, there's a requirement not to just be in unbearable suffering that can't be alleviated, but also to be terminally ill. But there are other group of countries, Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, and, and as I understand it, maybe even Canada as well, which have dispensed with the terminally ill part and just require you to be in in sort of unbearable suffering that can't be alleviated. And some of the countries define unbearable suffering as including mental suffering and not just physical, meaning a, a middle-aged, physically healthy person with chronic, unalleviable depression could also get assistance to end their life. 
Where do you personally draw the line? Uh, I'll just correct you one second. There. Please, the UK please. Does, the UK doesn't have these laws. Uh, they're, okay. they're debating them again. They're debating them. And can I just uh, wave my Catholic card too? <laughs> I am I am born a Catholic, but I am perhaps you best described as geologically lapsed. It's that far back. <laughs> uh, so where do I draw the line? First of all, I draw the line at um, I think you have to be able to competently request it. I think that's a, an absolute bottom line. Mm-hmm. I guess where I wander into the difficult area for me is what's been discussed in some countries now, which is what's called weary of life. Mm-hmm. And I think we all uh, uh, know of somebody who may this may apply to. And the outstanding example in Australia was a few years ago, Dr. David Goodall beautiful man, scientist, poet in Western Australia, who lived to 104, was still highly active, uh, well into his early hundreds, uh, in fact, won a case against the university that attempted to kick him off the campus at the age of 101 because they thought he was unsafe. Um, But at the age of 104, he had no terminal illness, but he was done. He could no longer, despite having led this deeply active uh, physical and emotional and mental life, he the burden of his life to him, he was absolutely exhausted. He wasn't enjoying any of the things that he could do. And he had a great fear that he would fall and end up in a home and die as he didn't want to. So he uh, had the opportunity and he had the resources to fly to Switzerland, the Dignitas Clinic, and he went through their application process and he did end his life. Now, Hmm. I I actually look at David Goodall and I think many a Christian heart would look at David Goodall and say, I get that and I support that. But I think it's very difficult to write a law that encompasses that because for uh, for a David Goodall, there'll be other people, and I certainly know of people and we've heard of people that wake up in nursing homes every day in Australia and, and wish that they hadn't woken up again. Hmm. But there'll be other people for whom it is, it is difficult to establish that it, it is clear, as clear as it is for David Goodall. Just to go more extreme though, Andrew, I mean, suicide is not illegal. Why shouldn't we have the unfettered right if we want to commit suicide? I know we're sort of moving outside, you know, voluntary euthanasia, but just I think it it, it throws some thoughts into relief here. But if we do want to, why shouldn't we have the right to get medical help to do it in the most efficient and painless way? Well, first of all, I'll make... Or should we? (laughs) (laughs) I'll make the strong distinction between uh, suicide and assisted dying. Please. I absolutely understand how uh, people can argue it is suicide. I I see... You you can look at that act and say, well, that is indistinguishable from suicide. And the way I I tend to explain it is to talk about 9-11. And we we all remember the terrible images of those people jumping from the buildings, the burning buildings, where the, the heat was so intense that the actual steel started to melt. And we don't still know how many people actually jumped from those buildings. It Mm. it was somewhere in the order of two to 400 people. Nonetheless, the the New York chief medical examiner did not classify those deaths as suicides. He classified them as homicides. And he basically said, when you are faced with that amount of uh, potential suffering, then who amongst us wouldn't have made that choice? So I think that is a good way of defining the difference between facing extraordinary suffering and no clear way out and suicide. And I think it's very possible and and very clearly possible to determine between an impulsive act and a rational and considered uh, decision to end uh, your unendurable suffering. But to go to your question as to why shouldn't Mm. we, these are the laws that we have created in different societies 
have been created to a great extent because those societies have demanded change. But it's the obligation of all parliaments and all societies to create laws which not only reflect their societies but also protect their societies. So, for example, I interviewed Philip Nitschke some years ago and he suggested uh, that all people over the age of 50 should have a pill, everyone should have a pill, that they can take whenever they wanted if they wanted to end their life. I didn't think this was a good idea. Uh, and I don't think it's a good idea. He strongly, he doesn't believe doctors should necessarily be involved in end-of-life acts such as assisted dying. But I disagree. Uh, I said before, my definition was that uh, it's a medical condition that's causing enduring suffering. Nobody comes to this, uh, these acts out of the blue. They've already been through, in many cases, years and years of medical engagement. Um, they're inextricably intertwined with the medical community. So I believe that uh, the job of society, as represented by their parliaments, including and involving the medical profession, um, mm. is to work collectively to help people at the end of life. I think this is an act of help, not an act of harm. But what's the danger of giving people pills to take over 50? Well, as I put it to Philip, I said, we all know that in our lives, uh, what was the expression Bernadette used? Radical capacity. I love that expression. I'm going to put that on my business card. We have a radical capacity for change of all kinds. So, yeah. for instance, you at 45 might be on top of the world in your career going magnificently. And at 55, you got a divorce, you don't see your kids and you're out of work. Hmm. Um, that to me is not a medical situation that you make available the uh, possibility of suicide. That is a situation that requires therapy and social support and counselling and uh, good friends and good community. I mean, there's still an element of your, you are foregoing the opportunity to change your mind, even if you're on the, on your side of the, um, of the line there, you know, you're terminally ill or you're in unalleviable and unbearable pain. How do you think about those final six months? You could have a terrible day, you could really, or a terrible few weeks and really feel like you just can't go on. But maybe, you know, dare I say, people can grow through pain. I don't know. I haven't been in that circumstance and I, I don't know how patronising that might sound, but people do maybe change their minds or something might happen so that they may, in retrospect, have been pleased that they didn't end their life. How do you think about changing your mind in the context of the the unbearable pain scenario that you are you're in favour of? I think undeniably some people go through pain, and I have extraordinary admiration for particularly those who are sustained by their religious faith, who embrace suffering as as part of that tribute uh, to Jesus suffering on the cross. I think that's that's impressive and remarkable. Probably the best way I can answer that is to say what I discovered in Oregon, which we've seen repeated in uh, Victoria in the first two years, is that fully a, th a third of the people that get the life-ending drugs don't use them. Some die before they can. Others choose not to. And what I've certainly seen from the people I've spoken to uh, is that people come to this very late. And it's an awesome decision to choose that moment to end your life. It's a really, mm. really hard decision. I would say, by mm. the way, it's equally awesome decision to choose to stop eating and drinking or to choose to, uh, uh, to go off machines that might be sustaining life. Um, it takes enormous courage to do it. And I think people let go of life uh, with great reluctance, great reluctance. And the word that came through from the many doctors and families I spoke to in Victoria universally was courage. They could not believe the courage of people doing this. So I think people come to it 
only at the at the very end. And mm. I think these are people that have really thought it through, and it, not just from when they got the drugs to the moment they take them, but sometimes for months or years beforehand. Andrew, I think that um, sometimes look there there are various reasons why people don't want to want don't want to describe it like that. Um, one is euphemisms are useful politically. Um, Another is I think people tend to confuse um, the act with the circumstances. So unassisted suicide is very often violent and impulsive and terrible. And assisted suicide is sometimes beautiful and peaceful. But they're circumstances and um, we should distinguish the circumstance from the act itself um, and then debate the act itself, debate the ethics of unassisted suicide and assisted suicide. That would be how I think of it. The other thing about 9-11, I, I think whoever it was who wrote that book was exactly right. They were not committing suicide. And here's the way I think to, if, if I were teaching this to students, I would try to show them. And that is that now 9-11, those people were so high up, this could never have happened. But imagine someone who's in a building where there's a fire and that person jumps out in order to get away from the fire. And it happens that they land on, the, on an awning below as a result of which their fall is interrupted and they don't die and they are delighted. Now, that tells us that it wasn't suicide that they were doing. So I think it is an important matter. I would prefer us to be debating unassisted and assisted, but I'm pleased for the opportunity just to explain why I do describe it that way. I think the awning is a nice idea. I mean, I imagine if there was an awning for someone with terminal cancer who was in the last few months to jump to jump out and be caught by an awning, they would they would choose that as well. Well, well it would depend on what they were trying to do. Yeah. Can, can I just observe, Emil? I love that analogy, Bernadette, but it is a magnificent example of a miracle from a car-carrying Catholic. I love it. <laughs> Can we move, Bernadette, to the slippery slope? Yes, that'd be good. Do you think there's a danger? I mean, if, if we open the door to assist the dying in limited circumstances, can we end up with depressed teenagers being helped to die? And, I mean, let me ask you this as well. Is a, is a slippery slope fear a legitimate reason not to make a law? I mean, like, there, there are laws. Laws are meant to reflect social consensus and norms, and we make laws all the time that could theoretically turn into slippery slopes but don't, like allowing alcohol hasn't inevitably turned into a, a slippery slope for legalising every drug. So, look, here are the two things that I think we need to understand. I think it's undeniable that um, around the states in Australia, overseas, and even uh, within New South Wales itself, um, the laws keep expanding. I think that's undeniable, but, you know, we can go to chapter and verse. I think the more important thing is to think about why that's the case. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a real question for Andrew. Um, and I think, again, there are two reasons. And if I can put them very crudely, I think the laws are such that 
they are subject to two different kinds of expansion. In one, choice will disappear. In the other, choice will be all it's about. Now, let me explain what I mean. So there are the eligibility criteria, and uh, you start with someone wanting this, and then they have to meet the eligibility criteria, which Andrew has set out, a medical condition likely to cause their death soon, from which they are suffering intolerably. Now, two doctors independently have to come to the, the same decision that the person meets the eligibility criteria. Well, then, if the person meets the eligibility criteria, why is choice necessary? Because in the next room, there may be somebody else who similarly meets the eligibility criteria, but either hasn't asked for it or can't ask for it. And thus, I think there is a serious pressure on these laws to expand, to include you know, people, people with dementia, for example. Now, various moves are made to try to say, well, you could arrange it such that they could still choose, but you're really skating on thin ice there. So I think that's one form of pressure that needs to be thought of, that choice will disappear and it will be just about people meeting certain eligibility criteria such that the doctor can say their life is no longer worth living. Now, the other way in which I think these laws, there's pressure for them to expand is this, that the patient wants it and the patient then, the doctor then has to see whether the patient meets the eligibility criteria. I think there's a real risk with doctors that they, they will say, you know what, this person really wants it. And, okay, they don't quite meet the eligibility criteria in terms of the medical condition or the prognosis or the length of time, but who am I? And you see that kind of pressure in Canada and the Benelux countries where um, the, 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 the expansion is towards the idea that anyone should have the right to choose this. So... I think there's empirical evidence of the laws expanding, but I think the more important thing for us Australians to think about is why that's the case. And I think serious people on both sides of this debate won't just dismiss this as of no importance. Look, I really have to um, push back against Bernadette's suggestion there that this is about doctors deciding that people die. It is a, a fundamental misunderstanding if not misrepresentation of the law they are about people's choice they're about doctors assessing if they are eligible and then people choosing doctors never decide that someone should die it is against the law it is against the very fundamental basis of the law Bernadette can I ask just hypothetically if you were sure that there was no slippery slope would you still be against the sister dying I, I I would want it removed completely from the medical profession if the politicians want to legalise this, then they should either do it themselves or the invent, invent, <laughs> invent some other so-called profession. I, because of the, the corrupting effect, I think, that it has on medical profession. If you don't mind, uh, Emil, I'm just going to add one or two comments about the slippery slide. What happens if the slippery slide is a good slide? 
I mean, we always assume the slippery side is a negative slide. But what happens if we go down the slippery slide? We, we keep on going down because it's just filled with benefits. We are seeing families happier. We're seeing pain more relieved. There, there are wonderful benefits. Maybe the slippery slide is the thing we should be looking for. You might have brought the discussion to something which, again, is common ground between Andrew and me, and that is the re- renewed urgency of advanced care planning. Now, advanced care planning comes out of Christian background. It comes out of the idea that I'm responsible for my own life. Uh, I should take proper care of it because it's precious. Um, But I don't have to accept everything that doctors urge on me. And uh, it's up up to me to exercise my own responsibility. I'm the one who should be deciding. Now, In our current circumstances, where all of us in this room today should anticipate that as we die, we won't be able to have the discussion with the doctor that we would like to have, yes to some things and no to others, we should now be anticipating that and and doing something about it to look after ourselves and the doctor too, and so we should be doing advanced care planning. There are two ways you can do it. The bureaucratic way is, I think, absolutely hopeless, filling out bits of paper that never refer to the circumstances as they come to exist. And the other way, what I should do is to work out who I'd like the doctors to have the discussion with, work out who that is, tell that person because that person will probably find it very hard and then make it clear so that that's that's documented. So um, what that can enable is that I avoid having imposed on me life-prolonging treatments that are either futile or overly burdensome or that I simply say no to for whatever reason. That, I think, is a, a desirable development, and I think Andrew and I, th- this is common ground between common us. Ground. Can we go to, to vulnerable people, Bernadette, now? Because yeah. that's one of the other big arguments here against assisted dying is that vulnerable people may be pressured to end their life. You know, they may, you know, maybe you feel like a burden to your family. And, and, and I, I imagine, let's be honest, in many ways, those people are. And, but we don't want people who, who, who feel like a burden to their family to be pressured to end their lives. How, how would you spell out the concerns of, uh, you know, around this? Well, I, 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 I simply name the concern. Um, a, a couple of years ago, um, the late Dr. Roger Syme was asked in an ABC discussion that he and I were both involved in. Somebody said, look, you keep talking about people choosing it. Uh, she said, um, what we need it for is all those people lying comatose with de- dementia in nursing homes. And he said, no, 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 I'm not quoting him directly, but I think I'm quoting him faithfully. No, no, keep the discussion to what it is that we're focusing on now. Mm. We need to get this through. And then maybe in the future the society will think that it's unfair that people with dementia don't have this service available to them and the society will need to think about this very difficult question. Now, this is um, 
I think so. I, I, I admire Andrew for saying he thinks that's a really difficult question. But I think what someone who is um, committed to it being a matter of choice, we need to hear Andrew saying, I would never, ever support it for people with dementia. Uh, well, I'll say, I'll say two things. First of all, Bernadette, you're absolutely right that this question is going to be on the agenda. In fact, it's well and truly on the agenda. Yeah. Uh, it is wherever I talk about this, and this is going back six years now, it is by far the number one question I get. Why aren't there laws to help people with dementia? And uh, my answer is always because you have to be able to competently uh, express your wish uh, to die. That being said, um, I spent time in the Netherlands with a family and with the Life Ending Clinic, where in fact they do assist people with dementia to die. But it was very interesting to see. It was a very long and involved process where the woman involved, her, her, uh, her name is Jenna, um, she had to prove right up until the evening before she actually drank a liquid that she understood what she was asking for. And the, the person that ran the life-ending clinic, and her daughter explained that process to me, but the person who ran the life-ending clinic, he put it, uh, I thought, very well. He said, they spend a lot of time with requests for dementia to establish competency. And he said, you have to make a decision. You have to choose to leave the ball before midnight. In other words, if you are demented and you don't wish to have that future that many don't, uh, where they end up as a shell of themselves, then you have to choose to end your life before it would naturally end while you are still mentally competent to do so. Andrew, even if, you know, if we just stay with the voluntary nature of it, and we talked about mm -hmm. dementia here, but even if you are able to freely um, and, uh, you know, in sound mind consent to it, there are subtle forms of coercion, aren't there, that, you know, someone could say they're freely consenting and not co coerce, but if you feel like you're a burden and you want to relieve your family, of yourself, it's very hard to to define a form that is going to pick up on that, isn't it? Look, I, there's absolutely no doubt that that pressure exists. And uh, I certainly do not dismiss the possibility uh, that some people may feel that very strongly when, as they use these laws. But there, there are two things I'd say. One is that the experience from uh, Victoria, which is reflected overseas, is that the coercion is actually very strongly the other way. It's from families not to do this. Do not do this. We don't want to lose you. But the second thing I'd say, and this goes back to the idea of the continuum here, where did these laws come from? Where did they come from overseas? Where did they come from here? They partly came from an acknowledgement, and very strongly in the Netherlands, where it was the, the, the Dutch Royal Medical Society that was instrumental in driving their laws, that doctors were already assisting people to die. They were doing it illegally. They were doing it without consultation. They were doing it without oversight. Um, there are many different ways that can be done, and I'm sure Bernadette might dispute some of these as being assisting people to die. But even in this country in Australia, the, the process of terminal sedation where uh, people are sedated into a coma uh, at the end of their life, which is a, a, a really good medical act, there's no regulation of that. There's no central record kept. When people uh, um, choose to withdraw uh, from treatment or stop eating and drinking. We don't have any of the checks and balances about any of those awesome end-of-life decisions as we do with assisted dying. Nobody is checking to see, is there coercion? Is there something else happening in the family? And I think the, uh, the advent of assisted dying laws is bringing regulation and light uh, to end-of-life practices that should have been there a long time ago. 
Let me make one one comment on that one, Emil. Um, and it's this, that um, retired Judge Betty King, when asked about um, coercion uh, after the first couple of years of the, um, the Victorian experience, said there's absolutely no evidence of it. But, of course, that claim, the worth of it, depends on the data on which it's based. If you look at the application forms, the, all of the paperwork that the doctors um, have to fill in, there is no point there where uh, any evidence that the doctor might have thought of coercion uh, could be noted. So the retired judge's claim saying there's no evidence of coercion was, as I think, entirely worthless. But look, there's a lot of different experience here. But one thing I think we do know, and that is that it's, an, it's a phenomenon that's known in nursing homes and hospices of families wanting their, the person they love to be overtreated and families wanting the person they love to be undertreated. And one of the things that can motivate the desire for undertreatment is in fact the, you know, keeping an eye on the family finances, on the cost of the yeah, nursing yeah. home and all of that. Can I ask you, Bernadette, about palliative care? I mean, a lot of your your argument is partly predicated on the idea that palliative care can end reasonably end all suffering. Can it? And yeah. and if it can't, isn't there a way for assisted dying to sit within the toolbox of palliative care rather than being an attack on its very identity? Mm, no. Well, I I um I. I don't believe, and I hope I've never said, that um, medical forms of the relief of symptoms can extinguish all forms of suffering, mm. even all forms of physical suffering. Mostly they can. Mostly they can. Every now and again, very rarely, you need to respond to physical suffering. And by the way, it's common ground between Andrew and me that we, we both very much regret that people suffer as they die. That's yeah. common ground. Um, just every now and again, the physical suffering needs to be relieved indirectly by light sedation. But you know what? What is um, uh, uh, what people suffer from as they die? It's all those forms of suffering that are lumped under this heading: existential suffering. Loneliness and fearing being a burden, boredom with tiredness with life, um, all of those things. Now, strictly speaking, they are not things that doctors have any expertise on at all. The doctor, by and large, doesn't know what's going on in the family, doesn't understand the family dynamics, doesn't know what pressures are being put on either for the person to accept more life-prolonging treatment or to, to accept le less. So um, uh, I, I think going back to the Philip Nitschke idea with, with the pill, one thing I think that responds to, Andrew, is this, that mostly people fear dying, not death itself. Maybe most people fear that too. But mostly people fear how it will be as they die. 
And uh, my, my experience of working with people at the the doctors who work with people at the end of life is more than anything else, that is a, the, the most burdensome form of suffering, the fear that at the very end I will be in a pain that's too much for me. Yes, this concept of all those things Bernadette said are, are, are correct. There are many different forms of suffering. But she excludes from it uh, the kinds of suffering that are equally difficult for palliative care to treat. Uh, and they can be multiple forms of suffering. So as you are dying, and this can be days, weeks, or even longer for unfortunate people with illnesses such as uh, motor neuron disease or multiple sclerosis, amongst the things that you can be dealing with are incontinence, vomiting of an extraordinary nature, extraordinary fatigue, the side effects from the medications you're being given, delirium, the fear that uh, Bernadette explained, neuropathic pains, which are very, very difficult to control, bones breaking, um, watching the suffering of your own family as they watch your suffering. These are just some of the things, and they can be happening simultaneously. They can increase in crescendo, and they can be very clearly all that is going to happen to you for the rest of your life. That is also suffering. It is suffering to be somebody, as uh, one of the people I met in Victoria, her mum, Margaret, had a neurodegenerative disease. Her life, and, and this, her mum had been a nurse, her life was reduced to being lifted in and out of a bed in a sling with no pants on to be taken to the toilet. She couldn't do anything for herself. There was absolutely nothing palliative care or medicine could do. That was her life for the rest of her life, and she didn't want that life. So suffering is much more, and I've heard many an archbishop put the argument that it's simply about loneliness or about feeling a burden or it's some kind of failing in the soul. Uh, these things may all be part of a person's dying, but suffering is a much wider concept than that with very clear physical effects as well. Great. Well, that's the end of part one. We're coming straight back with part two. Okay. Well, thank you, Emil. What we'd like to do in this in this part of the podcast is actually explore the principle of charity with both of you. And you know, as we say at the beginning of our podcast, the principle of charity is designed to seek the truth, not win the fight. But equally, one of the key dimensions of the principle of charity is to listen carefully to the other's points of view so that you fully understand it, but equally not to focus on the weakest part of their argument, but to consider the whole argument. What we'd like to do and what I, we'd like to do in the show, and maybe we'll start, uh, Bernadette, with you, is maybe in a minute or two, can you give us the strongest parts of Andrew's argument? Um, and then we will ask Andrew to do the same. So over to you. Well, thank you. And look, Andrew can, can mark me out of 10. Because yeah, we'll do that, uh, actually. We'll have a charity barometer today. It's, <laughs> a, it's a real challenge. I, I, look, so here's my best shot. Andrew thinks that some people are forced to undergo terrible suffering as they die. And he thinks we shouldn't continue to let that happen. He thinks there are lots of things that we can do to improve end-of-life treatment and care, including facing up to our own mortality, including promoting advanced care planning, to name but two. But that said, he thinks there are two extra things that we need that we don't have without these laws. One is 
adequate pain relief. But Andrew thinks that doctors can't provide adequate pain relief because that would be killing the person and they're not allowed to do that. And the other thing that he thinks that we need is due regard for the wishes of the person who is dying, but he thinks that doctors aren't free to respect the patient's wish to die in comfort and with dignity. Thus, he thinks we need these changes in the law and he thinks we, it should be legal, legal for doctors deliberately to assist people to end their own lives or to do it for them. Now, he does have reservations about these VAD laws. One uh, minor one is he's got reservations about the move to do it by way of telehealth. Um, and Andrew's view is that should only be in special circumstances. And another reservation that he's got is he's not sure whether we should open this up to people with uh, dementia. Um, and as I say, he thinks this is a very difficult question. So two last things. I think he thinks that the opposition to these laws, um, much of it is fueled by deliberate misinformation, such as the idea that palliative care can extinguish all forms of suffering. And the other thing that um, he thinks the opposition to these laws comes from is people with religious beliefs who think that all this should be up to God. So... Um, and as I say, he doesn't think of it as assisting someone uh, to, uh, to undertake suicide. Great. Thank you, Bernadette. Andrew, we'll, we'll do the charity barometer. We'll just go back to school for a moment. <laughs> out of 10, just out of 10. And, and you don't have to – truthful barometer, not charitable barometer, truthful barometer. How did, how did Bernadette do out of 10? I'd probably, I'd probably give a 6.5 to 7. I, I'd greatly appreciate it that Bernadette wasn't using expressions like doctors killing people. I, I was really gratified to hear her say what I think mm -hmm. it is, which is mm -hmm. assisting someone to die. Um, I was disappointed to hear, considering the, the range of the discussion we've had about suffering, for Bernadette to reduce it, as I hear consistently done by those that are, don't wish these laws to exist, to reduce it to the word pain. It's not about pain. Pain is part of suffering, but it's about suffering. I was a little surprised to hear the reference to telehealth. I'm not quite sure where that came from, but um, let's skip over that. That's probably a small point. So I thought it was um, uh, it was a reasonably fair representation, but with that significant um, uh, carving out of the word pain. Okay, good stuff. Um, Andrew, why oh, did I'm you a have bit a... I'm disappointed, but there we are. <laughs> six, six and a half out of ten could do better. <laughs> I was going to say seven, a flat seven, uh, but then Lloyd said it doesn't have to be charitable, it can be truthful. So. <laughs> it's a truthful charitable barometer. It's a truthful charitable barometer. Well, let, let's, see, let's see, Andrew, how you go. Uh, Bernadette, we're going to have to rid yourself of the bias that you've been marked down, so now you just have to go back to being objective. It's going to be very hard. <laughs> I know, I know. As I understand it, Bernadette's strong points are that assisted dying does undermine faith in the medical profession. Um, that once you uh, allow one category of people to be helped to die, such as the terminally ill, it inevitably expands to include others and you can't uh, control that. Uh, that you can never construct safeguards that 100% protect vulnerable people from uh, the prospect of abuse. Uh, and that all lives are of, of equal value. We must never violate life. 
not even our own. Uh, I, I know Bernadette said that um, uh, I view this as being a great deal about religion. I think a great deal of it is, and I think uh, it, is a, it is an entirely valid and powerful belief that our life is a gift from God and no one has the right to determine when it ends but God. Um, I think that's a powerful belief for Bernadette, but not necessarily for everyone. So that's that's how I'd summarise it. And I score myself at a nine. <laughs> <laughs> like like Andrew, I am going to mark him down for claiming that my view is a religious view. Uh huh. Tell us more. Let me say something about the principle of charity. Can I do that? Please. It actually comes out of a bit of Aristotle. And Aristotle was reflecting on earlier scientific views about the nature of reality. And often he only had a fragment of two or three words like you can only step in the, say, you can never step in the same river twice. And what he's trying to do with these earlier scientific views is make sense of them. And what he would do is take the view and pack it around with the assumptions the person must have been making to come to that view. Mm. And that's why I think this podcast is a wonderful thing because what it has invited me to do is to think about the assumptions that inform Andrew's thinking Mm. uh, and, and to notice that many of these assumptions are shared So the undesirability of people suffering as they die is common ground. The fact that there's a myriad forms of suffering as people die, that's common ground. So what I think the principle of charity does is it directs us to to, to, to build up the common ground and then see, see where the differences What generates the differences? Thank you. I've asked each one of you to argue the strongest points or advocate the strongest points of the other, which is key to the principle of charity. But equally in the principle of charity, it's about reflection of your own argument and not to get into self-righteousness or overconfidence about that. Andrew, what's the weakest part of your argument, do you think? I think the bit that causes me most pause, uh, what I call at the fringes of where these laws are, um, I think having spent that time in, in Belgium, particularly with uh, some of the country's most senior psychiatrists talking about psychiatric euthanasia, I think that's an extremely difficult question which must be approached with great mm. caution. I think the question of, uh, I was talking about David Goodall before, uh, about um, people who are weary of life as opposed to people who have a medical condition which which may be causing them suffering, I think they're... I think it's true to say that the, as society continues, as we live longer, God knows I'm hearing people saying we could live to 150, heaven forbid, um, I think there may be more pressure to uh, create a law and, in fact, there were suggestions in Holland which were rejected to create a separate law to encompass people who were, quote-unquote, weary of life. I would have a great caution about that kind of a law for the reasons I expressed mm-hmm. before. Um so uh, in the spirit of charity, uh, I mean, obviously I could put a whole lot of uh, uh, context around all of that, but sure. in the spirit of charity, I'll leave it there. Okay, fantastic. But Ed, how about you? Which part of your argument do you feel 
you are less confident about or that people should feel less confident about? Look, I think the thing that troubles me uh, most of all about it is this, that it's all very well to give the account of the role of the doctor as people um, uh, deal with significant illness and as they come to the end of their lives. It's all very well for me to say that futile treatment and overly burdensome treatment shouldn't be administered and physical symptoms should be relieved. It's all very well for me to say that. I am not confident that is widely understood and accepted in the medical profession. So that's a real worry to me that I, I, I can say to an Andrew, but there, there are ways that doctors can adequately and look after people as they die can adequately look after people as they die when I know just as well as he that people continue to die badly. Part of changing one's view, being objective, requires, I mean, any change requires an enormous amount uh, of intellectual energy, horsepower. You know, we get very locked into our views because it's beneficial. Uh, Part of the benefit is Sometimes we have identity around our views. And Andrew, I'd like to start with you first. I mean, you, your career, as I understand it, was, you know, as an award-winning interviewer, and now you've moved almost not even to advocacy, but to activism around voluntary assisted dying. I mean, for you to change your view or to hear a view that could challenge you, you almost have to have the intellectual and emotional horsepower to change, which is hard. But in part, you're giving up you're giving up part of your identity. Do you find that you're listening less to the alternative side? I effectively started my journey on this at a at an international anti-euthanasia convention. I spent two days there. I, I really appreciated the opportunity. I listened very, very carefully. It was quite new to me, the arguments against, and I took them as my measure when I went to Europe and North America as, well, are these things real? Since then, and you're right, I have become moved from advocacy to activism, and and I've done that based on the clear and repeated evidence of suffering and, I would say, abuse at the end of life that I've seen around Australia. But (laughs) to have those conversations, I have had to and still have to, and I enjoy those conversations, sit down, particularly with politicians who don't agree with this law or who don't understand this law or who who hold strongly Bernadette's view. And I always approach those conversations not from the angle of here's what I think and here's why you're wrong. My first, second and third question is tell me what your doubts and concerns are. Hmm. So I'm constantly uh, being challenged as to my understanding and to my views. Bernadette, in, in a similar vein to my question to Andrew, you've defined yourself as a member of the Catholic Church, you're part of it, um, you write about the Catholic Church. If you differed in your view on the Catholic, with the Catholic Church on this issue, do you find that, that to be a high level of risk? I mean, you know, there, there's a potential excommunication. I'm not talking about, you know, formally, but socially. In a similar way, if I started articulating in my family... Uh, and with my friend group, very strong pro-Trump views, I, I, I'm likely to lose friends at a accelerated rate, uh, and, and probably family members as well. But what, what's what's the risk for you 
in in the Catholic Church around articulating a different view around voluntary assisted dying or, you know, any term that you want to put onto it? I, I wouldn't speak on behalf of the church if I, if I changed my mind on the fundamental. If I, if I um, abandoned the view that human life ought to be treated as inviolable and came to think of it in terms of its quality, I clearly I, I would have to give up the position that I have, which is I run a little ethics centre at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is it's a very um, wide stream and um, I would have probably as many um, conversations that would involve points of agreement and disagreement mm. with um, co-religionists. Mm. Um, thirdly, um, we, we oughtn't to underestimate the common ground there is between very many Christian teachings and very many beliefs of the rest of society. Mm. So um, I, I, I have a sense I'm not getting to what you're really pushing me on, but when I first heard your question and you put it to Andrew, I, I, I was thinking of this. Look, it, it, if it turned out... That So one thing that was said very early was that legalising this practice could well diminish the number of suicides in communities. That's a really interesting argument. I'd be really interested in that. It would, it, I'd have to rethink things. I don't think it's the case, but that would give me pause for thought. And let me throw one other thing in. I really understand this fear of... Dying. I don't mean of death, because that's not our subject matter. I might be frightened of that too. I, I, so again, that's that's not foreign to me. Right. I suppose my question is: when we explore the principle of charity, and I find this for myself, is it's quite hard to change one's perspective if one is afraid of the social group that you belong to and the dangers of doing that. And I, you know, I... Oh, I gosh, look, if, that, if that's your question, then I, if that was my fear, I'd be with Andrew in a second. <laughs> can, I, can I put the question more impertinently, Lloyd? Please. Um, Bernadette, you're, I believe you are the recipient of the highest papal honour that can be given, which is pretty impressive for somebody in Australia. Do you know, what, I, do you know what it gives me? The right to, on a horse, gallop up and down <laughs> St Peter's Basilica, nothing else. Well, I hope you have, uh, I hope you have claimed that right. <laughs> I haven't. Uh, but, but part of that award uh, is to uh, defend the teachings of the church and the, and the pontiff. Uh, and, and, of course, the teachings of the Vatican on this are extremely clear, which is that uh, the, the euthanasia is um, not allowable under any circumstances, that it, it is a, a sinful act. Your, your point about suicides is very interesting. There needs to be a lot more research, but I, and this is far from empirical, but I can certainly give you two specific family examples of people that would have suicided uh, had they not had the option of Victoria's Law. But listen, Andrew, Andrew, you're a great man for, for telling a compelling story about an individual case. 
and individual cases are very powerful. On, I, I've had a look into the statistics about whether uh, legalising these things diminishes the rates of suicide. I've looked at it in, in European countries and in the American states, and it seems not to be the case. But I mention it because that would really give me pause for thought. Now, I, I don't think I would end up uh, I, I, um, being in favour of these laws, but I might take a more tolerant attitude to them if that really were the case. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Bernadette, last question to you. I, I, I'm struck by your lack of self-righteousness. You, you know, you come from a religious tradition. All of us, when we, well, not all of us, but many of us, and I would include myself, uh, when we're arguing a point or when we feel confident about ourselves and we're in our social bubble and we're getting confirmation bias about the other side, there's a... You know, there's a strong smell of self-righteousness. My, my sense is you're not. And, and how, how do you do it? I'm one of eight kids. How could you be self-righteous if you're one of eight kids? You're being shouted down the whole time and you're trying to hold your own, yes. I'm number four girl and then I was followed by an all-singing, all-dancing boy. No wonder I've got psychological <laughs> problems. Um like, look, um, just on the religious thing that, you, that you're clearly interested in, and so am I, I love theology, the person with whom I had the most challenging and thus most satisfying discussions is uh, an Upper West Side Jew. He and I differ on so much, but there's uh, a common interest in, in, in the theology. And there's always some always something more to be said on every subject. Beautiful. I think we're going to conclude there. I want to thank both of you. I have learnt a fortune, absolute fortune, um, your humanity in the show, the fact that you've showed up, you've had that conversation, but I feel your heart, I feel your rationality as well. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure having both of you on it. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you too, and thanks, Andrew. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a good thing to do, I'm sure. Uh, likewise, Bernadette, I really appreciate it, and, and I'll sign off as Dave Allen used to. Good night, and may your God go with you. <laughs> <laughs> Quick reminder that if you like this podcast, please leave a review, tell your friends, or get involved on social media. It goes a long way to helping people find us and our conversations. Thanks for listening, and see you soon. What do we keep? What do we leave behind? Hear from 16 thinkers, including Stephen Fry, Roxanne Gay, Slavoj Zizek, Waleed Ali, Naomi Klein, Peter Singer, Sam Mostyn, and more. Eight conversations, eight responses in sound, one podcast to record this moment. Subscribe to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas wherever you find your podcasts and join us at The In-Between. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.